on those headphones. It's time for Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine. Welcome to Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine, the podcast that explores all things kinky in a sexy and inclusive way. This show is intended for mature audiences aged 18 and up, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We believe in risk-aware, consensual kink here on the show, so if you do try things mentioned on the show at home, know that neither the show nor the cast are responsible for any accidents, injuries, legal or property damages that may occur while getting your kink on. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5 of Naughty Talk. I'm Sunny Lee Maine, she, her, and I'm here with Panda, she, they, it. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing okay, doing okay. So you and I both attend a lot of events, and yes. I think that for folks who are newer to lifestyle stuff or specifically maybe not new to kink, but who are maybe starting to do things in public for the first time, there can be a little bit of uncertainty before entering different types of kink spaces. And so today we're going to talk about two specific types of kink spaces and just try to demystify that a little bit, Um, specifically munches versus dungeons. So, I mean, what is a munch? Because I feel like everybody says, oh, if you're new, go to a munch, go to a munch. What do they mean by that? (laughs) That is very true. Uh, Munches are usually what most of us recommend when somebody wants to meet people. Uh, So a munch is really just any gathering of kinky people. I mean, not even necessarily kinky. They're poly munches. They're like religious affiliation munches too. It's really any affiliated gathering where... It's usually around food or like around like a restaurant or a public space where people just get together to socialize. And that's really all the requirement of a munch there is. There are also online munches now where really it's just like people hanging together on Zoom and there's not really any kind of theme to it or like layout to it. It's really just people socializing and interacting. So reasons why a munch might be happening. Sometimes it's just for kinksters to meet up in a geographical area or people to meet up who have a similar shared kink. Usually that information will be in the details. Some of these are public events where you can RSVP on FetLife or something like that, and you can just go after you've RSVP'd. Some of these are private events where you need to be confirmed to attend. Um, For example, Panda, you were telling me about some munches that were held to sort of vet people who might want to participate in classes or in parties that you were hosting, right? Yeah. um, In New Hampshire HypnoKink, which is the group that my master and I run, which is on hiatus right now. Um, yeah, uh, it was before I was in the picture, but HypnoStory and our partner Yoshi were running New Hampshire HypnoKink events before the pandemic. And they would often have munches before they would go to a different space to hold a hypnosis class. Or if it was a private community room where they were renting out the space and wouldn't be interrupted, sometimes they held the class in that space. Uh, But that would have to be very specific to the location you were in, and you would have to check with that venue to see what that atmosphere is going to be like. There are definitely, like, munches where they are used as a vetting process before heading to, say, someone's house 
for a private play party. And that's really done for the safety of the attendees and the hosts as well. Right. And so it can be a very casual thing. It could be a large scale thing like, hey, this group of people is gathering twice a month in this, you know, really big coffee shop or restaurant or shopping mall. There's a a giant one in Boston that I've seen that's run, I think, out of the Prudential Center. I haven't Mm -hmm. attended, but I've seen the notifications for it pop up. And so a lot of those things are very casual and it's important to understand the difference between a munch and a play party. So a munch that includes any kind of play is not really just a munch. And usually it will say so very specifically that there might be X, Y, Z going on there. But generally you should assume that it's sort of a vanilla venue. And therefore you probably, unless it's very clearly stated otherwise, don't want to be showing up in your fetish gear. You'll be very embarrassed when you walk into a vanilla restaurant and you're in your leather bondage gear (laughs) and everybody else is just hanging out in jeans. Yeah. So, you know, it's just important to understand it's a really good way to meet people in your community and it's a good way to potentially vet a partner. So for example, if you wanted to meet somebody in a public space with other kinky people around, you might attend a munch together it's a really cool kind of first kink date or even better if they attend something on a regular basis to go to that event so that you can sort of see how they interact with people who know them. But it can be a good way to sort of get tuned into your local community on an in-person and very sort of low pressure basis. Yeah. And I would say that if you're in a location where there are not munches happening at the moment, be that because of the pandemic or otherwise, it's also not very difficult to start one. My friend started a munch down where she was living before she moved that was specifically for women. It was anyone who identifies as a woman could come to that munch uh, just so that it was a safer space for women to talk about women's issues and to meet other women because there are often not a lot of spaces where queer women can really hang out and get to know each other in a safe environment. But all you really have to do is contact a space, whatever venue you choose, see if they're willing to accommodate you, and then get your word out there on FetLife, through friends, maybe loop someone else in on the organizing who has more social connections than you do. And for whatever niche you would like there to be a munch for, it's pretty accessible to create one. If you are thinking about starting your own event, be it a play party that's recurring, be it a munch, I definitely, when you're choosing your space, encourage you to think about things like accessibility. Yeah. Because you want it to be, you know, accessible to everybody who wants to participate. Absolutely. And there's so many restaurants and especially like mom and pop shops and more local venues that may not be super accessible. Like they may have stairs, they may not have a ramp or an elevator. They may not have menus that are accessible for someone who would need a braille menu, for example, Uh, just try to make sure that it's going to make it as easy as possible to be at your munch. It's already stressful enough to go to this gathering of people where you may not know a lot of people and you're going to socialize and meet more that you want to remove as many other obstacles as humanly possible. Okay. 
So I want to dig in a little bit now to a dungeon situation, which is very different. And dungeons are contained within a variety of environments. And so you can have sort of a BDSM or lifestyle club that has spaces that are designated as the dungeon, or you can have you know, something like a convention that has a space that's designated as a dungeon. So generally, we're talking more about the play space, but these can be found in a variety of different kink um, events or, or venues. And it's really important to understand that each one has different rules, really specifically usually stated either in an invitation or on the website or in the membership policy. So definitely recommend by starting by doing some reading before you go to one of these places. However, there are some things that are sort of common etiquette in any kind of kink space where play is going on. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Absolutely. And just first and foremost, do your research before you're going to attend one of these things. There might be differently themed nights with different standards or expectations, depending on what is going on at that space. So if it's like a weekday meetup, that's like a class or something, then maybe you are just going to show up in jeans and a t-shirt and that that's acceptable because there's not really going to be much play involved. But if it's a more weekend fetish party There may be a dress code minimum that you have to wear all black, that you have to have some kind of kink gear of some variety, even if it's small. Uh, Usually all black and no jeans is like the most minimal dress code that I have seen for a lot of the spaces. Because they do understand and try to make it accessible as well for those who might not be able to afford fetish gear. I really love kink parties and clubs. It's one of my favorite things to do and something I've really been missing since the pandemic. And I really like to go on themed nights. And I think it's really fun to kind of dress up and be part of the vibe and get like your whole glamorized fetish gear going on. (laughs) Um, You know, sky high heels. One of my favorite spots is... um, really uh, off the beaten path. It's located in sort of like an industrial warehouse. And the first time I showed up, I was like, I must be in the wrong place. And the Uber driver said to my partner and I like, are you sure you want to go in there? (laughs) Like, I'm not really (laughs) sure you want to go in there. And um, I think for good reason, it's sort of not obvious what it is. I think it probably would get some negative attention from folks who have a bias about kink. But it was actually, you know, there was, once you got close enough, you could see that there was a designated parking area and a bouncer outside just like any other club, but it took a little bit of effort to find it. And it's really kind of a fun space. There's a a window off of the dance floor in the bar area where you can see a play scene going on. If people are playing in that room and there are three or four different dungeons that are functioning at one time. So it's just kind of a cool space. There's the dance pole. So I've definitely enjoyed doing like a strip tease or like a little pole dance in front of a crowd. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not an exhibitionist or anything. Nah, totally <laughs> uh, not, never. Um, so lots of fun can go on, but it can also, I think, lead some people, especially who are new to feel sort of frenzy where they're like, I want to do all the things all at once, all right now. And, you know, step back, take 
in your surroundings, kind of observe how other people are behaving, talk to somebody who's been there before, before you show up, you know, don't just kind of dive right in. If you're not sure what the rules of the venue are, kind of ask someone to show you around. A lot of places will have signs on the walls. They'll have sort of designated staff to kind of show you around that sort of thing. So don't hesitate to ask. It's always better to ask than to dive right in and do something that's going to be a giant social faux pas. Yeah. And I think that it might be honestly worth doing like a separate episode on how to prepare oneself for a party or for this kind of gathering, because I can also think of a lot of pro tips that I've learned over the years of how to prepare and how to take care of oneself at these kind of parties, especially if you're alone and especially if you're going for the first time. But since we're on etiquette today to dive right into that, the ones that I can think of first off the top of my head for attending a play party are, I mean, first of all, we've decided that rule number one, just the umbrella rule is don't be an asshole. (laughs) Yes. Do not be an asshole. (laughs) Like it's very simple. Do not be an asshole. (laughs) Seemingly simple, but apparently difficult. Uh, At least for some people, (laughs) please, when you're witnessing a kink scene happening between two people who you do or do not know. Or eight people. (laughs) Or eight people who, if you're witnessing a kink scene, you may ask if you can join the scene but really consider that before you jump into it. If it's like an intimate experience between two partners and they're just like really deep in that like eye gaze connection, maybe just witness from a distance and leave them alone. If it's more of an exhibitionist predicament type situation, then maybe you can, but definitely ask before assuming anything. I would really say like 90% of the time I would recommend you not ask to join into a scene that's already in progress because you've missed all the negotiation, all the discussion, and you have no idea if those people want to be interrupted at all. So unless it was the kind of thing where I participated in an event at a, a convention, which I imagine could happen in other types of kink spaces where it was sort of like a living art exhibit and it was clearly meant to be interactive and that kind of thing you might be able to participate. But I mean, I would probably advise against trying to insert yourself into an ongoing scene. I agree with that. And just please do that as respectfully as possible if that's what you choose to do. But I really don't recommend doing it. I was thinking more specifically coming from the tickling community there are so 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 many times when other people ask to join in especially if it's a group tickle torture kind of scene i love bottoming to group scenes where three to five of my friends are bantering with me with each other just coming at me usually while i'm tied down and like swearing at them a lot (laughs) and quite often we have had somebody asked to join the scene the answer is almost always no so be aware of that that the answer will likely be no because this is a probably a negotiated scene that they have worked out between the active participants and usually if there is a group scene then there is a designated top who is in charge of who is allowed in and who is not please 
don't take it personally. If the answer is no, try to be graceful in that answer and give that scene room. In general, please, when even observing kink scenes, give the scene some room, (laughs) particularly if there are impact toys going on that you may get in the way of, like dragon tails, floggers, whips. These things have a wide berth, particularly with whips. There are times when it's two feet, three feet long, And someone needs to really be able to have the room to wind up before they strike. And if you are in the way of that, then (laughs) I'm sorry, but it's kind of not their fault if you are hit by that whip because you were standing too close to the scene. And I I think that there are a lot of spaces where that will even be designated. But in general, I mean, I would say like, if you're not invited to play in a scene and you're not participating, I would be at least like 10 or 12 feet back. Oh, yeah, that that's ideal. In some play spaces, that can't happen because the dungeon rooms are pretty small. And I understand that. But just be respectful about your distance and about your level of watching. There's a difference between watching and leering staring that kind of thing can make people uncomfortable please don't feel like you can just start getting off to the scene in front of you if that hasn't been explicitly okayed and hopefully negotiated with those people before the scene started particularly as people who were particularly as to people who identify as women and have come into our own in the community through our 20s, there have been many, many times uh, where in particular we have both been in a scene and have had someone stand too close, have had someone whip out their bits and start jerking off. Uh, Sunny, if you want to share that little nugget of a story. Yeah, I mean, this is terrible, but it is actually something that happens unfortunately and it's a good way to get thrown out of a club it's a good way to get shunned by the community and not welcomed back but it's still most importantly of all in my opinion a violation of consent like you don't approach a stranger with your genitals out (laughs) and just like expect them to be okay with that it's just it's not okay at all and you know I enjoy clubs. I have done a lot of scenes that were watched by a group of people, sometimes like you mentioned, in a very small space. So where they were like a little bit closer. You know, for example, I had a scene in that room I was describing that's sort of behind a window. Um, So everybody from the bar can watch through the glass, but there's space for people to sort of stand at the head of the bed. Mm. And because it's such a small room, people kind of understand that if you can't fit comfortably at the space that's well at the foot of the bed, you need to watch through the window. You shouldn't be coming around to the side of the bed. It's too close. Mm -hmm. And I had a scene going on where I was actually doing breath play and, um, you know, side note, if you're going to do something that's edge play, you need to kind of clear it usually with the dungeon monitor, the DM. But I was doing a really intense scene that involved breath play. And um, my partner was doing the breath play by covering my mouth and nose with their hand. And 
So I couldn't, I was laying on my back and with their body sort of over my body, I couldn't really see directly behind me. So I couldn't see anybody approaching from behind, if that makes sense. And so I had this experience of being like very into the scene and I knew that there were people off to the side watching, but I had this experience where I was really like deep in my headspace and enjoying my scene. And all of a sudden I see this like alarmed look on my partner's face and they held their hands out sort of back behind my shoulders. Like they were trying to push somebody physically back. And I was really scary because I couldn't see what was going on Mm -hmm. from, you know, the vantage point of my body. And I, I had bondage too. So my, um, my wrists, I believe were bound to my ankles with cuffs And so it was terrifying to have somebody like coming from behind me while I was bound that clearly was alarming my partner and somebody was literally trying to climb onto the mattress to like insert themselves into our scene without asking permission, you know, with like their hand in their pants. Oh my God. Yeah, it was terrifying. And, you know, I like to go to events that are theme nights. And sometimes if you go to something that's like a Valentine's Day party, for example, or a holiday thing, or in particular, like in this case, it was at a local club that I had been to many times before, but it was after a local convention where there were a lot of people local from out of town. Sometimes, you know, you'll get people who are more people who are brand new. And people who are just sort of like wandering in who have never been there before. And there's just Mm -hmm. more of this stuff going on. I think this was a Valentine's Day party after the, um, the Neela fetish fetish event. So there, I mean, there were people from all over and people who weren't local after the convention were looking for a club or a party to be at so they could play. And so it was just packed that night. There were a lot of people there that aren't usually there who had maybe even never been to an event before. So Mm -hmm. just keep in mind, you know, those types of events, there's probably going to be a little bit more risk because when there are that many people there and a lot of people are unknown and sort of unvetted, I feel like more like more of that stuff happens. But I mean, don't be an asshole who's climbing onto a bed with somebody else who's having an intense scene. I mean, just respect consent. Don't get in people's space. That's why, you know, it sounds like in certain sort of niche events where there are group scenes going on in particular, there are certain types of events where that's a little bit more common, but in a a broader scale event, you know, where there are a lot of strangers present and it's not an intimate play party with people that, you know, for me personally, I don't ever want to be approached while I'm in the middle of a scene. I want somebody to come and talk to me respectfully or talk to me and my partner before mm-hmm. we're ever in any kind of headspace, before there's any bondage. Like if a person is in bondage and they're being gagged, like I had a hand over my mouth and nose, like that doesn't give them an opportunity to say, no, you can't join me. They rely on their partner for that safety. It's just not something you ever want to insert yourself into. Yeah, absolutely. And please remember that events that have dungeons versus clubs that are a dungeon and like that's how they make their money and that that's how they run all of the time are probably going to have different rules particularly around sexual acts so make sure that you've read up through a website or fetlife or ask somebody 
what the specific rules of that event are and if you can or cannot have sex. Usually there are some different penetrative rules. There are different rules about how naked you can get and what activities are allowed, especially when it gets to what's kind of societally considered the edgier play, like blood play, knife play, medical play, fire play, uh, fun, all the fun stuff like that that I love to do, but make sure that you're allowed to do it in the space you're in before you engage in that. And there's also a really important distinction to make between swingers clubs and kink clubs. Yes, that's there, so important. Yeah, there are swingers clubs that have fetish nights maybe once or twice a month. In fact, you're probably more likely to run into a kind of club like that than you are to run into a strictly fetish club. But especially in that type of environment, just be extra careful because it's important to realize that swingers have very different cultural expectations on how to approach consent than kinksters do. Now, this is coming from my own personal experiences as someone who has been to both kind of parties and identifies as a kinkster and not a swinger, that swingers in general seem to play more fast and loose with negotiating, with consent, um, and like are feel more free to be naked at parties, to have their bits out, to approach other people for sexual activity. And that if it is a swingers club with fetish nights, you may encounter more of those kinds of people at the party who may not understand the rules of engagement for a kink environment versus a swingers environment. I actually haven't ever attended a swingers party. I'm polyamorous, but I don't identify as a swinger. So it wouldn't really be my scene to kind of show up and, you know, switch and swap with people that I didn't know, you know, I've never observed anything like that. So I can't really comment as to whether that's a, like a broad stroke community thing, or um, I'll take your word for it. Cause you've, it sounds like you've attended, but in a kink space, you know, kind of pulling back to that, I think some things that are important are, as you mentioned, know that some spaces are okay for sex and some spaces are not, but that might even be within a venue. So like it might be that you can play or have sex within the dungeon, but not in the bar area, not on the dance floor sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so kind of be aware of that. But also you're surrounded by human beings. Be respectful, say hello, you know, have an actual conversation and take notice of social cues. I can't say that enough because every space is different. You know, if you're approaching a couple and, you know, they have, the couple has one person who is holding a leash and the other person is kneeling at their feet with a collar on, it's a little disrespectful, I think, to walk up to the person who's kneeling with the collar and say, hey, do you want to play without addressing their dominant, for example? Yes. And there are, this is more of an old guard rule, I believe, than a modern rule. But it used to be the case that if someone was wearing a collar at a party or a play space, that you do not approach them without asking permission from their dominant to do so first. Now, in these times, I believe that collars are more of a fashion piece or that some people just like to wear them because it feels good to them. And that does not necessarily mean they may, that they do or do not have an owner. So uh, obviously, yes, if it's a person who is 
actively engage with someone else, if they're at the end of a leash that someone else is holding, then yes, please speak to that dominant, have that respect that they are probably in some kind of DS or owner property dynamic and address the owner before you address the property. I uh, give newbie orientations with my friend at a con and we often say, I put it in this ridiculous example of like somebody having a pet squid. If you want to touch that pet squid, you don't go up to the pet squid and just start petting that squid. You go to the person who owns the squid and say, hey, are they people safe? Can I touch them? What is their name? And have an interaction with them before you touch the squid. And yes, it's a ridiculous example, but I don't think that's that far off of a metaphor from how you should approach things in a kink space. And regardless of who you're addressing, just don't ever touch anybody. Like, do not put your hands on a human that has not consented to be touched. It's not okay. Hand on the shoulder at the bar, you know, putting your hand around someone. No, just like, don't do it. Do not touch people without asking if it's okay to touch them, period. And if you keep that as sort of your, you know, one of your number one, maybe it's number two, right? After don't be an asshole. I don't yeah. know. They're they're very close. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So number one, don't be an asshole. Number two, don't touch people without asking. And yes, that does mean an arm around the person. That does mean a hug. Even if it's a person who you have touched before, if you only encounter them in public kink spaces, then still ask. There's always a possibility that for whatever reason, they don't want to be touched that day. Or there could be some kind of misconception about how close of a relationship that you two have. And maybe you think you're close, but they don't think you are or vice versa. So just agreeing on what is and is not okay before you engage in anything, including platonic touch, is super useful. It's so funny how these sort of things have sort of influenced my day-to-day life. I feel like it's always in the back of my head. So I will often, if I want to hug somebody, like open my arms and stand there and wait to see if they yes. accept the hug. You know, I don't just throw my body against them unless it's someone who's like my partner, you know. And I, I just, I feel like I don't do a lot of touch with people who aren't my partners, period. And I know there are a lot of people who feel like they're expressing that they're listening in like a vanilla setting. They're expressing that they're listening to you if they put their hand on your hand or their hand on your shoulder. And I just, I really don't do it anymore. I I realize just thinking about it now. And I think that that's probably something that's evolved over time after I've spent more and more time in kink spaces. It's just that I don't, even, even a friend, I will very rarely like throw myself at them unless we're very close. And obviously, you know, if you have an intimate relationship with someone that's existing and ongoing, that's different. But, you know, if it's somebody I haven't seen in a long time, I'm not going to fling myself at them, even if I really miss them. Like, I will probably do some gesture or say something to indicate that I, I'll say, like, I really missed you. I would love a hug or something like that. But I will pause and give them a chance to say no thanks. Mm-hmm. And I think that hearing no gracefully, like you mentioned, is so important. So you can ask someone if they want to play. You can ask either the person directly. You can ask their dominant. 
you know, are you guys interested in any play outside of your dynamic tonight? Or would you like to play with me? Or would you like to do X, Y, Z? You know, when you're having those conversations, be really specific, just because a person has agreed to do one thing doesn't mean that they're okay to do other things. Don't add things on once the scene has begun. Really make yes. sure you're very clearly negotiating. Yes. And yeah. You know, it's it's just really important. And expect to hear no. I think that if you go to a party or a dungeon or a club and you're expecting to hang out with other kingsters and have a nice time and maybe observe other people playing and that's the only expectation that you have for the evening and get to know people, you're probably going to have a really fun time. And if you go to one of these events with a play partner who also wants to play and you guys have negotiated and you agree that you're going to play and that's your expectation that you're just going to, you know, play with the person who's agreed to it. I think that those are really good sort of solid expectations for what's likely to happen. But if you go into Mm -hmm. an event without your partner that you're planning to play with and you just expect that every person you ask is going to want to invite you into their scene or is going to want to play with you and you feel sort of like entitled to play, I think you're really going to have a bad time because you've built up this thing. Oh, I've got my bag of toys and I'm really excited. I'm going to this kinky thing. And, you know, people feel like, okay, I put a lot of effort into this. Sometimes it's very expensive. You know, the, the cover charge at the door can cost quite a bit. So I feel like people invest in it and then they feel like I'm entitled to play. And I just recommend not to go in with that attitude because you need to accept no gracefully, except that just because it's a club doesn't mean that everybody there wants to play with strangers. And it's not an insult. It's nothing about you in particular. You know, maybe they only play with their designated partner or partners, or maybe they're there to watch and they don't want to play at all, but no means no. And doesn't mean that like you can keep poking on them throughout the night to see if they've changed their mind. Or maybe they are a monogamous couple who, don't involve anyone at all, but just don't have a space to do kink in their own house because they have small children. And so they, this is their night to get out. There are so many different kinds of people who attend these events for a myriad of different reasons. And probably I would say like the minority of people are looking to play with new people or strangers. They might be looking to get to know some more people, but I would not be looking to get to know and then play with new people for the first time at the same party. Right. And, you know, I think that if you set reasonable expectations, you're probably going to have a good time. If you're one, not an asshole, two, don't touch people without their consent, and three, don't have any expectations that strangers are going to want to play with you, you can have a really nice evening. Like you can have some really fun sort of like voyeuristic experiences where you're, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a really cool way to sometimes see people doing things that you don't know how to do, but that you've been curious about and decide to do more explanation. Can I tell you a quick story? Yeah. Oh my God. Um, there (laughs) we went to a party, uh, this past Sunday, actually very small dungeon, Only six of us came because they have very strict COVID policies about how many people can come. Uh, And I think it's a pretty small cap, but it was also just a slow night for them. So there was a person there who was doing body drumming, like has all these different kinds of percussion mallets 
and just puts a bunch of like metal music on and then goes to town on somebody with drumming mallets of different kinds. I know, I know. I'd never seen it before. And I was so enthralled. So uh, my partner and I did play, but we also took the time to go watch this activity she wanted to partic- she wanted to experience it from the bottoming side just as a demo. So he did a little bit on her and then I asked if I could actually use his mallets and try it out. So that was a lovely learning experience that came out of this public dungeon space. You can always learn really cool things just by watching other people. Absolutely. A couple other things to remember we didn't touch on don't show up intoxicated. Most clubs or dungeons are either going to be completely dry or they're going to be BYOB. But if it's BYOB, don't get sloshed. It's really bad etiquette. You're not Mm -hmm. a safe player if you're not in control of yourself and you're not in control of yourself if you're hammered. Most public dungeons that I've experienced that have a bar have a two drink limit where if you have more than two drinks at the bar, If you're wearing a wristband, they will take the wristband off. Or if it's not a wristband party, they will put one on you so that the DMs can differentiate if you've had more than two drinks or not. And that if you've had more than two drinks, that they ask that you not play after that. And also, you know, it's not just about getting into the scene or watching a scene. You also want to be respectful of aftercare spaces and, you know, making sure that that can be just as intimate as a scene, that you're not interrupting that sort of thing, that you're cleaning up after yourself. Most places are going to have like a sanitizer station where they have things that you can spray down the equipment with. You know, if it's anything that's like going directly in a body, I definitely just recommend. Um, and I mean, you won't really see those things out in many places, but like, you know, bring your own toys that are going to be like fluid bonded toys for yourself to play with and you know anything that the public is touching like spanking benches crosses that kind of thing just like you're at the gym wipe it down and even if you're just there socializing please clean up after yourself with food and water bottles and your coat your stuff don't don't just leave it everywhere like you live there if you're eating something or drinking something Please just don't leave it at the table where you were eating or drinking because volunteers at these parties are usually very few and work very hard and have long nights. And before they can leave, they have to walk around the entire dungeon and throw out everyone else's trash that those people couldn't be bothered to throw out themselves. Ask me how I know. So please, for the love of Panda, pick up your own trash, throw it out your damn self. We're all consenting adults here, and we would love to not have to pick up after other people like it's a food establishment. So just kind of recapping, know the space, do some research, read about the space you're in, know what the rules are, talk to someone who's been there. You might want to do things like you would in any other venue or party or event, like you might want to set up a safe call. I think Panda's right, there could be a whole other discussion about what to do to prepare yourself. And, um, you know, so I'll kind of stick to once you're already there to be respectful of people to ask before you put your hands on them. Don't insert yourself into ongoing scenes. It's much more polite 
to talk to people when they're not playing and say, hey, do you want to play? Taking no gracefully. And um, those are, oh, and don't get hammered. (laughs) Don't get hammered. Don't show up drunk. Don't get sloshed while you're there. And, you know, if you're presenting in a state that's inappropriate, don't be surprised if you're shown the door or not admitted. Do you have other things that you want to just kind of add to that list? Things that maybe we missed? The thing I can think of off the top of my head is that remember that a lot of people who are coming to these spaces are regulars at these spaces. So they've probably seen each other before. There's probably some kind of core group of people who are friends or play partners or some combination thereof. And don't assume just because someone is interacting with someone in a certain way that you automatically can as well. That's a good one. It's funny because in vanilla life, I've actually had to stop myself sometimes because we all, we all are going to make mistakes. And one of my friends was talking to her sister in a very teasing, joking, like making fun of her kind of manner. And I caught myself jumping on the bandwagon because that's often how I interact with people as well. But I had to take a step back and realize, wait, I don't know this person. I should not be interacting with her like this yet. And interactions in kink spaces are very much the same. Just because someone walked over to someone and slapped their ass doesn't mean you now have free reign to go slap their ass. Absolutely. One other thing that we didn't mention is the possibility of running into somebody that you know from your vanilla life in a kink space where you didn't expect it. Really important. So- If you're at a, it doesn't matter what it is, a munch, a convention, a club, a dungeon, and you run into somebody else that you know in your vanilla life, but didn't expect to see there, hadn't, you know, had a discussion about interacting with, do not go up to them and use their real name, mention anything to do with how you know them, like their job, which, you know, it's outing that person who might not consent. And the only thing that keeps these spaces safe and private is that everybody keeps them safe and private. It's really a community sort of honor system. So the best thing to do is you can say hello if you recognize somebody that you know and you think it's appropriate to do that. It's a social contact, but you should probably say, hi, introduce yourself the way you want to be introduced in that kink space and say, what would you like to be called here? You know, so mm-hmm. introduce yourself with your scene name. It's a really good idea to have one of those before you go to any kind of kink event. And I personally think it's kind of nice if you keep it consistent, somehow related to like your social media fet page or whatever, so that you're recognizable. Um, I'm always going to be Sunny. In fact, probably more people know me as Sunny than my legal name, but <laughs> I'm always going to be Sunny, whether it has to do with my kink books, whether it has to do with an event, whether I'm teaching a class at a munch, doesn't matter. I'm always going to be sunny. And so, you know, I might just walk up to that person and say, hi, I'm sunny. It's nice to see you. What would you like to be called? And maybe even ask them, is it okay 
for us to have conversation. Do you want to hang out? Because they might not. Mm -hmm. They might be mortified and really not want to have any contact with you at all. And you should be respectful of that and not be offended. It's very uncomfortable for people to realize that somebody from their vanilla life has seen them, to worry that they're going to be outed. So, I mean, you could just ignore them completely. That would be the safest bet. But if you know the person, you know, well enough socially and you want to say hello, really stick to those rules. Mm-hmm. The only other thing I wanted to say, and this is a bit separate from the other things that we've been talking about, we've mentioned pay attention to social cues, pay attention to body language. And I understand that not everybody is neurotypical in a way that recognizes soft social cues. And first of all, I don't think there is anything wrong with that. Our brains just work differently. There is some navigation in kink spaces that can be a bit more nuanced if you are the type of neurodivergent who doesn't read social cues unless they're very overt. So please keep that in mind for both ends of that, whether you're witnessing something or experiencing something that might be a little awkward, or you're the person who is that type of neurodivergent having an interaction with someone and all of a sudden they, it feels like out of nowhere that they go away or that they they say something isn't okay. There are lots of different types of people in the kink community and I believe there is space for all of them. And I think that we as a community need to be a little more understanding of that that not everyone's brain is going to work like ours, that not everyone is going to read if we're crossing our arms, that we are closing off or trying to pull away if we're like slowly walking away or something like that. So the best thing you can do for yourself if you're in a situation where you're uncomfortable is be direct about what you want or how you're feeling. Uh, Sometimes I have literally said okay, like, I'm going to head over there and talk to some other people. It was nice to meet you just to cut off that conversation if that's not somewhere you want to be. Obviously, if someone is a little more pushy, and they are not listening to your boundaries, then that is the place to involve a DM. Or if it's a regular munch, maybe the munch host, just to let them know, hey, I'm having trouble with this person. Either you could say I'm not comfortable like stating verbally how I'm feeling and that I wanted to get away from the situation. If that's not a place that you're comfortable with yet, or if you have said that you're not interested in something and that they continue to pursue you, you can let the host or the DM know so that further action can be taken if necessary. We were actually just laughing mutually at me (laughs) the other day when I was talking about how I don't have like girl flirt game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, because I'm a really direct, blunt person. And generally, if I'm flirting with someone, it's going to be clear. But that sort of like extremely subtle, like friendly, flirty, I can never tell. I can never tell. And sometimes I can recognize it like if I'm watching other people. And so I've been on the outside of this watching it happen and thinking like that's awkward AF. <laughs> like this person mm-hmm. doesn't know they're being flirted with, but then it happens to me. And so like if, if a person isn't sort of explicit, like 
hey, I'm interested in playing with you or whatever. If they just walk up to me and they make polite conversation and they're like laughing and giggling and flirting a little bit. I'm also like a very naturally sort of flirty person. It doesn't always mean anything. So I think Mm -hmm. I I just, I totally miss the subtle cues. And I'm sure there have been situations where somebody maybe like wanted to play and approached me and I had no idea that that's what they were trying to initiate because they were (laughs) blunt about it. And I I wonder sometimes like if those people walked away offended or not. And I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, they didn't ask to play and I would have been within my rights to say no, but it's nice to to know the difference. (laughs) And just speaking from the perspective of someone who has watched multiple people with that kind of neurodivergence be hurt, be not welcomed in a space because they don't understand the nuances of the social interaction uh, feels crummy to see. I understand it from both sides as someone who has been in a lot of really uncomfortable situations where I didn't feel like I had an easy way out. But that has taken a lot of years of experience to build up that level of agency and confidence to just say, sorry, I'm not interested and walk away from that situation. I'm like too blunt. I feel like I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. (laughs) And I mean, it doesn't matter which end you're on, it can lead to situations that are equally, (laughs) equally uncomfortable. But sometimes I think I'm just like too blunt and people think I'm being standoffish, but I'm just like, having like a Spock moment. And I'm like, yeah, I do not want to play with you in this space. (laughs) And it's not meant to be, you know, negative or offensive, but I'm getting better at it. I think I am probably going to suck at it again because I haven't been around people. Like even just like normal vanilla gatherings, I think are going to be hard for me for a little while. And I think a lot of people are feeling that way, like just edging back into even like being in a grocery store. You hear about all these people getting in fights on airplanes and stuff because Mm -hmm. they don't remember how to be civilized. Um, (laughs) I guess I'm probably more prepared to like walk into a kink space because that's become so ingrained in me than I am to like walk into the grocery store right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we've given folks lots of ideas and I hope that there are some things that you can take with you to make your first experience either in a kink environment or in a new type of kink environment go more smoothly and be more enjoyable. And so I'd like to take it out with a little story about a scene that went really, really right in a kink club. Yeah, hit me. So I arrived um, at a club, one that I was describing before with a partner. And it was actually one of the very first times that I had really done a scene with that many people around because it was a a very crowded club. There were probably over a hundred people there. And so we actually went into one of the dungeon spaces that was sort of in the back of the club. And it was one of the ones with a little bit less traffic. And so we went in and we had negotiated, so full consent, that we were going to do a spanking scene. And so, you know, step one, I was with a partner who I was comfortable with, and we had carefully negotiated all of this before we even came to the club. So we talked about what we were comfortable and not comfortable doing in public this time at this specific party with each other. And so he bends me over the spanking bench. And even with my eight inch pleaser stilettos, (laughs) my toes didn't touch the floor (laughs) because I'm little. (laughs) 
So I was literally hanging by my hips over the spanking bench. It was one of those ones where it's almost like a horse, like a gymnastics horse. So it's very narrow. It's not like a large padded bench. So Mm -hmm. I was sort of suspended over the bench by my hips with my ass in the air. And my partner flipped up my skirt and you know, started to spank me. And we did this impact scene and it was really lovely. And I was able to sort of sink into the headspace so deeply and be so involved in that moment that I was not even aware that the room started to fill with people. Mm. And so it started as empty. And I'm having this you know, sort of intense impact scene that was super hot and I'm feeling connected to my partner and I was feeling safe in that space enough to let my mind go. Nobody crowded us. Nobody made any noise. People just sort of silently started to file in and they stayed a respectful distance back. And so, you know, when the scene was over and my partner sort of helped me back onto my feet and pulled me back against their chest for some aftercare and a cuddle. It was the first time I became aware that the room was crowded. There were probably, I don't know, maybe eight people Mm. in the small room standing around me, but because they had been so quiet and respectful, I hadn't even been aware. And then I had this really super hot like exhibitionist moment that Mm. I got to have without any stress about Like, I wasn't worried about people watching me. I just got to fully enjoy it because nobody interfered. And then we went off to, like, a quiet space in the club where there were some couches and we had some aftercare and, you know, got some water from the bar and hydrated. And when we were both feeling, like, comfortable and ready, we, you know, decided that that was sort of at the end of our night and it was, you know – all we had really wanted to do in public that time. It was our first time in a club together. And so then we, you know, we got in an Uber home and well to the hotel. And then we had lots of really lovely, sexy time and sort of the anticipation that we built up in that scene, even though we didn't actually have sex in the scene in the club, you know, it just set the whole mood for the rest of the evening. And that was really lovely. And so, you know, I I think that that's really an example of how it can be really wonderful when things go the way they're supposed to go. Hell yeah. And that's like the greatest part to me of being in a dungeon space and playing in a dungeon space is that voyeurism exhibitionism that you really can't get anywhere else. One of my favorite things is when I'm mid scene and a partner will like yank on my hair and point my face towards this crowd of people watching yes Uh, it's (laughs) such a hecking hot moment yes and I get like really flustered and embarrassed because that's just my response to nice things but it's a very positive response for me there are lots of reasons to go to a dungeon space folks don't please don't let us make you anxious or scare you away from that experience at all there are just some scene etiquette things to be aware of to make it the best time for you and for everyone Right. Absolutely. And, you know, there are some big social faux pas, but if you just go in and you aim like your first time to just sort of get the lay of the land and have some conversation with people and check it out, you know, maybe go to a space that you plan to go to again and just have it be like an investigation mission where you're like, I'm going to get to know some people, let them meet me, kind of see what kind of stuff goes on here. Maybe, 
you know, get aroused by watching some really hot scenes and then, you know, take it home by myself with my own fantasies to work that out or with a partner to work that out. You know, that's totally fine. You don't have to have this giant, you know, edge play scene in the center of the club, like on a platform with a hundred people watching to have a good time. Aww. You can sort of like, <laughs> well, we, I certainly like that kind of thing. And I'm pretty sure you do too. But <laughs> yeah. um, like, if you're nervous, you, you don't have to do that. You can go, I mean, sometimes there's a bar where you can sit and chat with people or a dance floor. You can, you know, dance by yourself or with other people. Like you can have a nice night out and not necessarily do a public scene if you're nervous and you can kind of get the lay of the land and you can still have just a really nice time, even if you don't play at all. Or if you decide to do a scene like that spanking scene, that scene I described was with a partner who I was having sex with on a a regular basis and who I certainly had some wild play with in the hotel room afterwards. But we didn't really feel, you know, it was our first time in that particular space. We didn't feel like we needed to do some big giant scene. And if Mm -hmm. you have a giant plan to play and you get there and you're like, you know what, I'm just not feeling it either because of the people who are there that on that particular evening or just the vibe you're getting or the setup or whatever. If you're feeling like, you know what, that scene I had in mind isn't really going to work in this space, it's fine. You don't have to do it. It's so much easier to make a plan B than to give up on plan A entirely and decide you're going to be disappointed. You know, just in that every person you ask to go on a date with you isn't going to say yes. Every person that you ask to play with you in a play space isn't going to say yes. And that's okay. It doesn't mean anything about you as a person. People don't necessarily want to tell a stranger their whole life story. They could have any number of reasons that have nothing to do with you as an individual. So just kind of go in there with that expectation. And you know what, if people witness you politely and respectfully ask someone to play and they say no and then you you know say okay enjoy the rest of your evening and you respectfully back away and people are witnessing this kind of behavior they're going to be more likely to want to include you at future parties yes that probably cannot be overstated enough even if i'm not interested in a person if i know they're respectful I am way more likely to invite them to private things, to future things, even if I have zero interest in them and they're just a casual acquaintance, but I know that they will respect people's boundaries and that they are a good person. That's all that's required for me, because even if I'm not their person, they're going to find someone else who is at maybe a future event. And I want to help foster that for them. And also, you know, if you're sort of dipping your toes into being in public kink spaces for the first time. I mean, maybe you've been kinky in your private bedroom forever, but if this is the first time you're kind of deciding to be public, which can be a big adjustment, the more events you attend in an area or within sort of a niche kink, you know, the more you're going to get to know other people that do it and the more they're going to recognize you as a respectful and interested and like-minded person And then the more likely you are to have a good time at future events, to be invited into private play spaces, more likely to admit that person than the person who I saw do some crazy scene in the middle of a club that was, you know, making other people uncomfortable due to unsafe boundaries or not following the procedure or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not about showing off how kinky or risky 
your play is, if you want to be invited into other spaces, it's about showing off how respectful you are and how you understand people's boundaries and that you can be a safe and fun person to be around. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Panda. Thanks for having this talk with me. I think it was a good one. Um, We hadn't really gone into anything about sort of kink spaces in any detail. So I'm excited we were able to talk about it and I'm looking forward to having you back soon. Yeah, likewise. All right. Next up, I'm here with Mac and I'm pretty excited to talk about something that's important to the two of us. Again, we are partners and we're going to be talking today about sex magic. How are you today? Hey, Sunny. I am great. It's great to be here. Thank you. So sex magic isn't a kink. It's a spiritual practice, but we're going to talk a little bit about how BDSM and spirituality are interwoven for us personally. And I think that that's actually a pretty common theme that BDSM and spirituality are interwoven for a lot of people. And so we're really only going to be coming at it today from our own personal perspectives. That's, you know, something that we're experts in. We can't speak for anybody else, but I do think it's an interesting topic. And I think we should just kind of start by saying that we are both pagan identifying. Specifically, we practice Druidry. And in Druidry, there's a heavy emphasis on intellectual pursuits, creative exploration, energy work, and also connectedness to nature. So for us, that means that sex in general generally involves energy exchange. And it leaves the question, when does that become magic. And for me, it's when the energy is harnessed to manifest something. So why don't we start with just tell people a little bit about what even is energy exchange? So, you know, the human being really is a giant energy vessel. Uh, We create, or I should say, we use a lot of energy and we disperse a lot of energy into our surroundings. So when you do energy exchange, what you're doing is you're focusing that energy and exchanging it with another individual. So I personally have always been an atheist, and I would still say that I'm an atheist and that I don't believe in any type of deity. But being a scientist, I definitely understand the concept of energy. And there are all different types of energy, things that can be manipulated, everything from electricity to radio waves. And so I don't think that it's beyond the realm of science to think that there are types of energy that we haven't identified yet, specifically in naming them, or that those types of energy can be manipulated. And so that's sort of the perspective I came to this from. And I definitely believe that energy exists in all living things, not just in people, but in plants, animals, anything natural. It's become sort of a a new agey popular thing recently, I think, to collect things like crystals. And that practice is definitely rooted in the idea that all natural things contain this type of energy. And so when we're exchanging, we're sort of manipulating that and passing it from person to person. And so when we do that during sex, it's very intimate. But energy exchange does not have to be sexually intimate. Do you want to give some examples of other types of energy exchange or practices that aren't necessarily sexual? Sure. Uh, There's a lot of different healing modalities that uh, use some type of energy exchange. Uh, Probably the best known would be Reiki, which uh, is dealing with aligning an individual's energy flow for 
maximum health. So when it is intimate, we're passing it back and forth from person to person. And that in itself doesn't necessarily have to have that goal I was mentioning of manifesting something. But when it does manifest something, that means you're sort of channeling that energy to forward a goal that you have in your mind. So what types of things might you use sort of sex magic or sex energy exchange to manifest? Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, how long do you want this section to be? Uh, there's so many, so many uses uh, for uh, sexual energy. Healing would be one. Uh, probably the one I think that most people are f- familiar with, but you can also harness that energy to really focus your intent f- towards creativity or organization. I mean, there's just so many different variables and so many different things that you can use this energy for. And I mean, that's really sort of a an overly complicated way of saying you can manifest any goal that you have, right? Um, yes. So, I mean, whatever your intent is, whatever your goal is, as long as it's clear in your mind, you can direct this type of energy into supporting whatever that goal is. And, and that's the concept of manifesting. So we should talk about how personally we do this. And I, I think it's different for each person. And I individually tend to imagine sort of an ornate box in my mind. And the basic principle is you put in the box, whatever the goal is that you want to manifest. And I like to do that with a clear image in my mind and close the box and the box is holding on to that image. So then when you go about your sexy time and you're building energy, you are sort of charging that box. I tend to envision mine sort of getting a a brighter glow going on. And again, this is a visualization in my mind. I have my box, I have my image inside, you know, as the sexual energy mounts and I get closer to release, it glows continually brighter and brighter. And then at that moment of release, I open the box and I sort of release whatever that is that I'm trying to manifest to the universe, that energy that I have collected with that goal or that intent. And I actually have a a personal practice of, how would I describe this? I sort of imagine in my visualization that there is always an image taped to the inside of that box. And that is my overarching sort of global goal for my life, what I'm trying to manifest in my life. It has a very clear image in my mind. And so I sort of imagine that image being like a photograph that's taped inside of the box. So no matter what else I put in there for an individual ritual or an individual scene, that's always there getting a little bit of charge in addition to, you know, whatever I'm doing the ritual specifically for. Do you want to talk a little bit about what it's like for you? Sure. Hopefully I won't get uh, too red in the face and embarrassed because I'll be honest with you, this is the first time I've ever, I think, voiced this out loud. Um, So as I'm building energy, I will start focusing on the intent of where I want that energy to go and what I want it to do. And as it builds, I continue continually hold that image in my mind And then 
<laughs> because I was a volunteer firefighter and EMT for years, I picture my energy as water in the line so that when I ejaculate and uh, that, that water comes out of the end of that hose, I'm focusing it directly on what I want it to do. Giggling at daddy's magical <laughs> fire hose. Actually, you have never said that to me out loud. Um, you said something similar like, oh yeah, it's it's just like your box. <laughs> um, so everybody... Or less. Everybody, you know, has an individual way of sort of imagining this in your mind and, you know, having it be organized. I personally like the concept of the box because it allows you to put that thing away and then focus your attention sort of back on the scene, back on the intimacy, back on the pleasure. And so you know that that idea has been very clear and it's locked in that box and it's getting charged up. And then you only really have to directly turn your attention back to manifesting that goal at that moment when you orgasm or release. So it's a way to kind of have a clear goal in mind, but set it just aside enough that you can focus. Because if you're thinking too hard on what that goal is, for some people, it might be more difficult to also be present in the moment and to be aroused and to build that energy, which is the whole point. And most of our listeners will know by now that I'm a writer and I have a series called the Turn the Case series. And most of the books in the series have some kind of element of mind control or hypnosis or sort of fantasy magic. But book two in the series opened the boxes a little bit more personal. It was sort of a, a love letter that I wrote to my daddy specifically during the the time that you were battling cancer. And um, so a lot of the things in that are very personal to us and sort of, well, it's not a story about us specifically. The types of rituals that the practicing pagans and the stories do are very similar to a lot of the things that we do in our real life and our real practice. So I like to give, it's a little secret about me, but I like to give all of my protagonists a little piece of myself and it's something that I do in every novel. And I won't spill the beans on what all of those things are, but you'll know that all of my protagonists have something that's very personal to me. And so in that book in particular is a little sneak peek into my own personal spiritual practice and the practice that I share with Mac. So now that we've clarified a little bit what we're talking about when we talk about energy exchange, when we talk about manifesting and how that pertains to a spiritual practice, I want to circle back to kink because that is what this podcast is ultimately about and how BDSM can overlap with that type of spirituality for us in particular. Um, so the first way that comes to mind is really orgasm control. Do you want to say something about that? Sure. Generally, you know, those of you who have practiced orgasm control in the past, you, as you know, uh, the longer that explosion is put off, generally the more tingly and, and the more energy you have kind of kicking around your system, so to speak. So the longer you can go, the more that orgasm gets denied. Generally, the more powerful the energy release when you do actually have the opportunity to orgasm. So the longer you're denied for many people, the more intense the orgasm is going to be, and therefore the more powerful the manifesting. And that can be 
also done in the reverse with forced orgasms. So if you're familiar with a forced orgasm practice where you are sort of overstimulating a person and triggering their body to orgasm over and over again, each orgasm is an opportunity for a new manifesting of whatever that goal is. And when you're doing this type of ritual in a group sex dynamic, you're going to want to have everybody be ideally orgasming around the same time so that you can all channel that energy into that goal at the same time and have therefore sort of a little bit more punch. And so obviously orgasm control is really important when you're doing this in a group sex dynamic. Yeah. And, you know, generally you'll have one person uh, usually a dominant who kind of is in charge of the scene if there's multiple people involved and it's their job to really kind of control um, the orgasms, hopefully to all release at the same time, like Sunny said. Or really just to, you know, direct the scene in general so that everybody's on the same page and the dominant who's directing the sex might also be directing the ritual. So that's one place it can overlap. Now, BDSM kink, it's not for everyone. So I think that one of the reasons that it works so well for us to overlap this with our spirituality is that kink is just what does it for us. So the things that are going to generate the most energy in us personally, the things that are going to generate the most explosive orgasms, for us, they tend to be kinky. Now, you might want to take this a step further past even sort of typical energy exchange or manifesting? And how might you choose to incorporate other types of rituals into a scene? Well, as most pagans will will be able to tell you, ritual is all about symbolism. And the symbolism, once you use it over and over again, tends to become ingrained, and so therefore you already start adopting certain energy pattern, patterns which will help you to manifest during sex rituals as well. And not all spiritual practices include any type of ritual item, and I think for us in Druidry in particular, I don't necessarily feel that I need to have any type of ritual item to manifest energy or to have energy exchange. And that doesn't mean that I don't use any in my practice. I just don't think it's always necessary. For example, some of the ones that I do use are things like incense with, I like to use like Palo Santo. I'm not a big sage person. I, I find that it's really intense and it's not my favorite scent. So it's not particularly sexy for me. Um, but I really like the woody sort of citrusy scent of Palo Santo. And so um, ethically sourced, <laughs> I try to get ethically sourced Palo Santo um, because I am conscious about deforestation situation. But when I am using that, it's not only creating a sexy scene or a sexy space. We've talked about that in Central BDSM, using things like essential oils and, you know, candles and fragrances and that kind of thing as just one way to enhance the sexiness of your scene. But that's also something that clears negative energy from the space. So it serves a dual purpose. What else comes to mind? Lots of folks use wax or candles in ritual. You in particular, you're always buying those like little 
different colored tapers that represent four elements. And um, some people like ones that represent the colors of the different chakra systems. So if you're going to incorporate something like wax play into your BDSM scene, you could certainly choose colors that were symbolic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a great example. Um, also, you know, there can be some creative uses, uh, kinky uses for some other ritual items as well. Um, you know, mileage may vary as the the saying goes. Absolutely. But generally, you know, the basic idea is that whatever it is that makes the scene sexier, that makes the scene more intense physically and produces a more intense orgasm is going to give you more of a charge to manifest your goal. And so if you're a kinky person and you're a spiritual person, you might find that the more intense your BDSM scene, you know, the more charge you're going to get to manifest your goal, the more orgasms overall, that sort of thing. Something we hadn't mentioned yet was that lots of people consider sex outdoors to be sort of a kink because it's exhibitionism or there's a kink about risk of being caught. But for us, it allows us to tap into our primal nature and primal play for us personally generates a massive amount of energy. So it ties in, you know, to our connectedness with nature, you know, having sex outside in nature allows us to feel more connected to the elements for, you know, spiritual reasons or for manifesting reasons. It's a a practice of mine personally to draw on energy from the elements often when I'm doing a ritual. And so, um, and then there's just the, the sexiness of the primal play in general that leads to a really big boom. Do you want to say anything else about that? Don't lie, Sonny. You also like the exhibition part of it, too. Yes. Well, (laughs) this is true. We have unfortunately been caught (laughs) engaging in a sex ritual, specifically outdoors. Um, The person did not seem too upset. In fact, they were probably watching for some time (laughs) before we noticed their presence. So anyway... We're not on any kind of soapbox, and we can't speak for anyone but ourselves, but we thought it might be fun to kind of talk about something that's very personal for us and how that overlaps in our BDSM lives, and hopefully it's given people some food for thought, how they might, you know, overlap whatever it is that your spiritual practice is with their BDSM. All right. Thanks to both Panda and Mac for being with us today. Really fun content. I've really enjoyed recording And I think we should take out the episode with a little bit of erotica, this time not written by me, but written by Mac. And so I'll have him read his own piece to wrap up today. And it's short and sweet, entitled, I Control the World. I Control the World. Her hazel eyes glare up at me, the passion and the challenge clear in her gaze. Her claws slash out in an attempt to slip out from underneath my grasp. A hot iron of her nails sliding down my chest fuels the desire even further. She is mine, and I will have her. My cock is already poised, ready for her soft flesh. I grip her legs, hands like vices around her ankles. She flails once more, determined not to give in or surrender. We know we both enjoy the fight, too. Slowly, my greater strength wins, and I pin her beneath me. I can control her body, but never her mind. 
The snarl from her lips reminds me of this, and my returning growl reminds her that, in this moment of passion, my desire is only to spread my seeds. My hands clamp around her throat as my flesh invades her. The fire in her soul doesn't relinquish, and neither does my grip. Yet her flesh surrenders to mine, and her head turns, breaking our locked gaze. She buries her head into the pillow to stifle the sounds of pleasure as I breed her. The world slows around us. In that instant, that first few seconds of passion, I control her world. She cannot move without me. She cannot breathe unless I allow her. She trusts me completely, and I her. And that, well, that is the most beautiful thing in the world. Thanks, as always, for listening to Naughty Talk. Our show is available on most popular podcast platforms. For updates, to submit a request to be a guest on the show, to write in with questions for our hosts, or request lifestyle advice, head over to the show's page at sunnyleemain.com. You'll also find information about my novels, including my Turn the Key series, which are dark erotica with themes of hypnosis, BDSM, and sometimes a little bit of magic. All books feature different kinks and are queer inclusive. I hope you've enjoyed the show and you join us again next time.